0: welcome to the library science channel of new books network my name is jen hoyer and today i'm speaking with stephen bales author one of the authors of serapis the sacred library and its Declericalization*. serapis is published by library juice press and is available for pre-order now This book explores the historical um, and legacy religious symbols and rituals in the academic library, referred to here as the Serapian Library, and it explores the academic library as a powerful ideological state institution and investigates how these symbols and rituals support hegemonic structures in society. Stephen Bales is a professor in global languages and cultures at Texas A&M University. Steve, welcome to New Books Network.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So before we start talking about this book, I would love if you could share a little with listeners about your own background, uh, where you grew up and went to university, and what brought you to your work in libraries?
1: Um, So I grew up in Georgia, um, in uh, Augusta, Georgia. And then from there, I went to high school in, in Asheville, North Carolina. After after high school, I went to um, University of Tennessee in Knoxville, Tennessee, where I did my bachelor's, my BA in religious studies. Um, after I did that, I went uh, and got a job and worked for a few years as the the night watchman at a mental health care facility for several years and uh, one night uh, I had a, a patient punch me in my face in the middle of the night at like three in the morning and I realized like a light bulb moment literally a light bulb moment and I thought I've got to get another job so I went to my computer and I looked for any any educational program that could get me uh, that had a job attached to the end of it, unlike religious studies. So uh, I settled on um, uh, library information science. I went back to the University of Tennessee um, in 2002 and did my master's degree there and um, just stayed on after that, got my PhD as well in Um, communication and information. Uh, I I focused on um, information science and intellectual history. And after that, I I became a religion um, in philosophy and anthropology and some other things librarian at Texas A&M University, where I I worked there as a librarian for about 14 years, but then there was some shakeups in, in the library over the past couple of years and the uh, librarians lost their faculty status. So that's why I decided instead of staying, I decided to move to the um, global languages and cultures where I now teach religious studies.
0: Super, thank you. Um, so shifting now to this book that you co-authored with Lindy Casper, uh, Serapis offers a critique of the modern academic library as a crypto-religious institution. Could you share a little about how this book came to be? Like what prompted you towards this analysis and what inspired you to write a book about it?
1: Well, this really started um, back in in uh, library school when I was uh, introduced to some ideas in critical theory, uh, the interim director at the time was, uh, Doug Raver. And uh, now he's retired, but he, um, he introduced me to like Gramsci's theory of hegemony and really expanded my idea of, of culture and, and, uh, introduced me to critical theory and method. Um, so when I went to get my, uh, when I was, Going to do my dissertation, this I, my original idea was to do a uh, dissertation on the library's relationship to um, religion and um, through history. That was the original idea. But when I was talking to my dissertation chair, he said he told me, uh, that sounds like a really, really interesting idea, but um, you do want a job after you graduate. So <laughs> instead of that, I did my dissertation on um, Aristotle and uh, the Library of Alexandria. And Aristotle's influence, his philosophies, uh, influence on the Library of Alexandria and uh, libraries after that in scholarly communication. In the process, I really, um, I, I analyzed, Aristotle's dialectical method um, in relationship to how the Library of Alexandria was operating to create new knowledge. And so um, which I found fascinating. And after that, I moved from reading about Aristotle's dialectical method to, um, to more modern dialectical methods like Hegel, and then I got into Marx. Is dialectical method, as a critique, Um, and I started applying that to the library, Um, and I um, eventually went back to this idea I had of the library after I got tenure. Of course, I already had a job, um, so he couldn't. Um, But then I, I went back, And um, went and started thinking about the library as a religious or its past as a religious institution. And I applied, started applying this Marxist theory and dialectical method to it in order to better understand it. And I did a, out of that came a, a chapter in a book on class and librarianship for. Library Juice Press. So I eventually decided to expand on that chapter to create a, a monograph starting around 2019. I was doing that and then COVID hit and uh, that really threw a wrench into the whole thing and I ended up with a big pile of words. Um, so after uh, I was almost on the verge of just giving up on it, but then I... Uh, uh, Wendy, she came and she, she, was, she was a former editor for Journal um, of Academic Librarianship and the um, College and, you know, uh, oh, I forget, the uh, College and college Research Libraries. And um, she really came in and helped me figure out what I was doing and reframe it and uh, develop into what it ended up. Being so, it's been a long, long journey. Um, and I just can't wait to send a copy to that my committee chair.
0: Yeah, yeah, great to let him know that you finally got back to it and it, it worked out okay. <laughs> Um, well, let's talk a little bit about what is in this book. So you start off by giving us a history of libraries from ancient times. And in chapters one and two, we learn about libraries in the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, and then through late antiquity in the Middle Ages. Uh, you don't have to go into all the details of, of this narrative. You know, people can read the book, but, you know, give as many examples as you think is helpful. I'm curious if you could Explain what you see as the like core constitutional makeup of information institutions that we see emerge out of that era, um, what their role was in society, and what characteristics of libraries we can trace back to that time.
1: Yeah, so I think that 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 information institutions have been around for several thousand years now, but they uh, when they first like writing has always been language and writing has always been seen as holy or uh, divine um, and the and I, you know I'm, the first writing ironically was meant for creating like business records which I always found interesting and strange and kind of depressing or like writing a uh, writing uh, receipts for, or uh, sheep carcasses, things like that. So eventually they had to organize all these records to keep track of all these business transactions, but the actual task of learning how to write was very, very difficult, and writing was thought as holy or, or divine, and so the actual people who were tasked with collecting this information writing it down, collecting it, and organizing it were, uh, were and for the most part, they were uh, religious functionaries. Right? They were priests, scribes were priests. Um, so the libraries started out, or the organ- these organizations of information, for the most part, started out as religious institutions. I mean, there were, uh, libraries found in, uh, in uh, like uh, palaces, but in these civilizations, ancient Sumerian and uh, Egyptians and Greek civilizations, the, the the ruler was seen essentially as a religious figure as well, right? So all this um, information was created in a religious context organized by religious functionaries. Um, And the purpose began to develop into maintaining what, like uh, there's a Sumerian uh, or Assyriologist named Elio Oppenheim, who said that the purpose of this development uh, or these institutions was to maintain what was called the stream of tradition, right? So to maintain these scribes who were an elite, basically an elite um, caste in society almost, um, maintain their position in society and to maintain society um, throughout the ages through the stream of tradition. And And it worked wildly well I mean, if you look at the, the length of time that the you know Egypt and Sumeria they were around, they this idea worked wildly um, wildly well. So these the, these original institutions, uh, which I call proto libraries in the book, they were developed to. Sort of uh, as conservative institutions to maintain society, to maintain the, the, the uh, hierarchical patriarchal nature patriarchal nature of society. Now that and that's pretty much and the one of the means to do this was through religious ideology, and that pretty much is what has 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 remained the case. In, and that's my argument in this book to the present day. I mean, in in Greece, in the classical Greece, there is some some advances in um, literacy right through the the introduction of the alphabet, um, and uh, then we have uh, after that we have the more people reading and writing, more texts. We have more um, larger library collections, and then we have people like Aristotle. Um, So I think that while the there's an origin, there's a uh, that's the basic constitution of the library uh, is a religious organization for maintaining culture and uh, society ideology. Uh, At one point, with Aristotle we have a, um, a shift, right? And what I call, I call these earlier institutions proto-libraries, but with Aristotle, what we see is um, his philosophies, he basically came up uh, with a systematic way for producing knowledge um, through his scientific work and his his logical work, right? And the, what happened was the, the uh, Ptolemy, the first pharaoh of Egypt, he took he, what he decided to do is create something fantastic to really show off Egypt. So, and he thought, uh, show off Egypt and also Greek culture. So what he decided to do, uh, having been a student of Aristotle, was to create the best library he could. Right. And this library, and he imported all of these Aristotelian thinkers, Demetrius of Phalerum was the, the sort of the mastermind behind uh, organizing the library. And, and he was a, uh, an Aristotelian thinker himself. And he organized um, the library around Arist- Aristotelian principles as a means for engaging in the type of research methods that Aristotle had written about, this dialectical logical approach which involves taking um, the opinions of esteemed people and then uh, working through them dialectically in order to create new knowledge. And so to do this you need a lot, li- Aristotle used his library for doing this and so uh, this just seemed a uh, natural for Demetrius so Aristotle can see, be seen as like the first the first thinker to actually write down something close to uh, a philosophy library philosophy and the Library of Alexandria the first place or the first institution to actually put that into action right so I see it as moving with the Library of Alexandria is moving from um, a primary purpose of the institution is to maintain an extreme of t- tradition, culturally, cultural preservation, to um, while the Library of Alexandria certainly did these things, it also um, is profound in that it served as a means for creating new Knowledge that was its primary goal, but underneath all of this, even though the library is um, Library of Alexandria is something new, its basic foundation remains the same. I noticed it's a uh it's a temple to the muses I mean it was attached to the museum, which is a temple to the muses, the head of the Library of Alexandria was a religious uh, priest, and um, it maintained lots of the it maintained things like the hierarchical patriarchal structure, monumental architecture. Um, it was seen as a living the place where the holy actually actually lived. Right? So throughout history, um, the libraries, And information institutions were religious institutions and very visible religious institutions Um, until only very, very recently, the last few hundred, few hundred years.
0: Well, getting into, quote unquote, recent history, um, in Chapter 3, you start looking at university libraries around the 12th century. And so what was the social context for those kinds of libraries and how was that a shift from the libraries and proto libraries that we've talked about? Um, I guess like what characteristics did they inherit from the institutions we've talked about already? Um, But also how does this whole process of evolution bring us to what you've labeled in this book as the modern capitalist academic library?
1: Yeah. So I think that that at the end of, so at the end of uh, antiquity and the uh, during late antiquity um the libraries like the big um, in quotes academic libraries like the the library of alexandria and well in the serapium they started seeing really like hard times like the serapium was was uh, looted and and Pretty much destroyed, and uh, the we fell into uh, society. Western society fell into the um, uh, basically the dark ages, where literacy dropped, and and um, these information institutions actually tended to regress from this I- in this ideal of the uh, library. Um, of Alexandria that I put forth uh, back to something more akin to a proto-library, right? So the libraries were uh, basically kept in monasteries, right? So they reverted um, back to uh, these religious, they've always been religious institutions, but they were religious institutions, and um, basically they were kept apart from the the wider culture in these monasteries uh, that sort of the, the libraries were under the firm grip of the church um, for a long time uh, for many many years and uh, because they uh, they had to face all these things like uh, the cataclysms and and people uh, trying to just get their books um, and everything else. And so they were basically fortresses um, built up to protect the the uh, you know, the monks and the information. And when the church really needs to be credited for doing that, um, or you know, for the fact that we have a lot of that information today, crediting these <laughs> monastery libraries. But there was a definite regression. Uh, but later in in the like the later uh, high middle ages, um, these uh, monasteries uh, in, in addition to the monasteries, places for education became like uh, cathedrals. so people started to go to cathedrals for their religious education and therefore we started seeing larger larger libraries, academic libraries. and then in about, the 12th century we have what's called referred to as the 12th century renaissance most people think of the later italian renaissance but there's um actually uh, in the 12th century there was a, a renaissance in in uh, education and um during this time thinking the thoughts of like philosophers philosophical works of like aristotle were starting to be Reintroduced uh, people and uh, the scholars were getting a hold of these things, and generally the the time, high Middle Ages were uh, things had calmed down. It was a lot easier to survive; just basic survival wasn't as big of a problem, right? So we had there was more opportunity for um, for study. We have uh, scholars moving around between cities studying and um so these students what they ended up doing was banding uh you know it's still dangerous being a student and the church still had a lot of power over um scholarship right so what these students started doing to to protect their best interests was to band together into these sort of corporate Entities, and that's what the first um, Western universities and what we get the modern West uh, universities today from are these students that would band together so that you know that it was harder to rob them or rip them off, or um, it was easier for them to challenge the church um, in order to engage in scholarship. And so, in about 1088 CE, we have the first university uh, of it's the University of Bologna, and then by fifteen hundred, there was like at least seventy different um, universities. So um, we see the shift actually moving from the monastery libraries, this opening up right through the universities and through education, and this almost a shift backwards, looking to the past. Um, uh, and the role, again, of these, while the, the universities were still um, very much affected by religion and the church, we see this movement towards, um, again, towards the creation of knowledge as the role of the education. And therefore, the these university libraries were developed um, in, in, in order to... Uh, Again, serve this creation of knowledge. In the Renaissance, we have we see that the while the church is still powerful, we see it uh, the religion moving back more and more into the background in terms of the uh, academic uh, university and the library. And then with the Enlightenment, we get ideas, big ideas which are moving away these big abstract ideas, which are moving towards the secular. And these include things like intellectual freedom, individual liberty, uh, freedom of inquiry, right? And we start seeing the first nominally secular um, universities and academic libraries. But while we're seeing these nominally secular, this transition, this um, this structure, this religious basis, this res- residual culture, is still there, right? and it's being covered up by this sort of secular patina. But it's um, it's still there, right? Um, and we also see a move from feudalism as the the mode of production right, to to capitalism as the mode of production, right? And one thing that capitalism loves to do is to take advantage of defunct ideology for the purpose of advancing capitalism, right? So capitalism, while we have these secular institutions, capitalism is able to pillage all the best parts of this previous religious ideology, which was the primary ideology, so the church. We move from church to these cap- capitalist ideas, and um, education actually being a primary ideology instead of religion. But capitalism is able to take the best parts of um, religion in order to further itself. So when we have these universities and um, their academic libraries, we see things like uh, hierarchy, right? The hierarchy remains pretty much the same. It's basic Christian-Catholic, Roman-Catholic hierarchy that we see um, in, in the university. And um, in library faculties that have tenure status, we see the same Catholic hierarchy with hierarchy with the you can see the library dean is in the position of the pope, uh, all the way down to priests, um, uh, many different orders of priests, and you can see the patrons as, um, as uh, actual, lay people, and uh, so the the capitalism maintains the best parts that uh, that they can apply. To these institutions in order to uh, in order to reproduce capitalism. So that's what the the MCal is is the modern capitalist academic library.
0: Yeah, it's super fascinating for me reading this to see these threads emerge through history that are very recognizable to me today, but we don't always think about where they're coming from. Um, So then in chapter four, you explain the metaphor that really grounds this book, uh, Serapis and the Serapium. Could you explain for listeners who Serapis was and what you mean exactly when you speak of the Serapian library? Um, And then I would love if you could share how you see a concrete example of the Serapian library in Hodges Library at University of Tennessee, Knoxville.
1: Yeah, so Serapis. So most people they know about the Library of Alexandria, the Great Library of Alexandria, which was created by the uh, Ptolemy the in Egypt, um, but and not as famous as the Great Library of Alexandria is its daughter library, which was uh, created by they think by his son um, Ptolemy II, and and. Um, its namesake is well it's named after uh, a god Serapis, and it actually the Serapium is the temple to Serapis and what Serapis was is he a greco Egyptian um, composite god. there is some mention uh, very brief mentions of a god named Serapis earlier than the Ptolemies, but What Ptolemy did was he was a he's a master politician, right? So he's he was the first Greek emperor of uh, or Greek pharaoh of Egypt, and he was a he was the buddy of Alexander the Great. So when Alexander the Great died, he left. uh, Ptolemy stayed in Egypt and became the pharaoh of Egypt, and Ptolemy decided that he needed a way to. Um, to sort of uh, consolidate his rule over Egypt and build his legitimacy right, over the local Egyptian politician because the, there were all these Greeks coming into to Egypt. So what he did was he took this, um, and he had a dream, supposedly, had a dream of this god Serapis. Uh, that, And, and then uh, from this dream... He was told by his advisors that he needed to go. Serapis was um, in uh, a his statue was in a place called Sinope, and I believe it's in the uh, Asia uh, Turkey, modern day Turkey, um, and and he needed to go get that statue. So he went and got the statue and presented it to the Greeks and Egyptians in Egypt. And saying this was the God revealed to him in a dream. And it was a combination God. Uh, it was like a composite between Osiris, the God of fertility, and the God of uh, death and the afterlife, and Apis, who is another Egyptian God who just happened to be very closely linked to the pharaohs before, um, before Ptolemy and, and uh, combine those with, with Greek gods like primarily Pluto and Zeus to create a composite god that looked, that looked uh, in, in icon in its iconography is a uh, uh, Greek, but also had all of these symbols and elements that the Egyptians, a native Egyptian po- uh, population, would relate to, right? So this was a very uh, savvy PR move on on uh, Ptolemy's part, and, and it was a, an attempt to impose Greek culture in Egypt through through not so well-known new symbols, but also very familiar symbols, right? And it worked. It worked really well as a, pot- became a very potent symbol of the hegemony of the Ptolemies and the identity of Alexandria became essentially the main god of Alexandrian um, Egypt. Um, so the actual Serapium itself was the primary temple to Serapis. It was, the, uh, it was in the Egyptian quarter of of El- Alexandria. The great library was in the Greek quarter, but they decided to build the Temple of Serapis, who has this Egyptian ancestry, along with his Greek ancestry, in the Egyptian quarter of Alexandria. Um, And it was built around the third century, mid-third century by Ptolemy II, on the only hill um, in Alexandria. So most Greek temples are built on uh, Acropolis, Acropoli. But so the... um, Serapium was built on the acropolis in Alexandria i think they i think it's actually an artificial man made hill uh, but they built it there and in this there was a library uh, which seemed to be a was pretty much a natural thing that you would find in any temple in the the ancient world right so you found it in the great library of alexandria uh, Call me the first. He when he went out when he was out campaigning with Alexander, he saw all these gigantic Sumerian libraries, um, in these monumental architecture. So, so he started building them himself in these big, um, uh, these big temples, right? And um, so the it, itself it was a massive library. Some people that it, it's estimated that it has. Between forty thousand, or it had four between forty thousand and three hundred thousand scrolls. So some thinking maybe it had about a half as many scrolls as the Great Library of Alexandria, and it served as a place for um, it was almost a branch library of the Library of Alexandria, where scholars would come in order to do science and art. It, um, yeah, and for hundreds of years, it was. Uh, a center of learning, the the Great Library of Alexandria, um, possibly, was destroyed before it. So it, uh, the Serapium, actually took over the role of the Great Library of Alexandria, possibly, um, until about 391 BC. In 391 BCE, that's when Theodosius the Great um, closed all the pagan temples, which the Serapium was, and so the Christian mob formed and uh, rushed the hill and looted the serapium, burnt pretty much everything to the ground or converted it into uh, Christian churches. And um, that was pretty pretty much it for that. But we decided to use the serapium as a metaphor because um, we see Serapis, the god, is embodying the ideologies of both religion and state in the Serap- Serapium as uh, doing both of these things as, as being an exemplar of the library as an institution um, which embodies the ideologies of religion and state, but also incorporating abstract philosophical and conceptual principles such as knowledge, the search for truth, and uh, cultural preservation. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So we can pretty much that has served the as the model of the library, uh, the academic library, since right this sort of nexus between state, religion, and information organization, Um, uh, pretty much to this day. But the actual, you know, the the religion part is. Is not as visible, but it's still there, and it's still, and it still maintains a presence, and it still maintains, maintains an ideological force.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, and I'm curious you you use, um, UT Knoxville as an example of this. I I mean, you don't have to go into all the detail of, but I'm curious if you could, you know, give a few examples of elements of this that you see at UT Knoxville and Hodges library.
1: So the, the Hodges, Hodges library is, if it, it's one of the, the clearest examples of the religious symbolism in architecture that I've, I've seen. It's, it was designed um, in the, well, it was, it, it for a long time, it just looked like any, uh, a large building. But in the '80s, they decided that they were going to really outdo themselves, and they built a structure around. They they had this small, smallish uh, undergraduate library, and they decided to make it the main library on campus. And they built a, rebuilt it basically um, into uh, the the modeled after a Sumerian ziggurat. Which is a um, Sumerian temple. Uh, Murcia Eliade, the the uh, religious study, the religious historian, um, he was quite clear that these uh, these ziggurats, these seven story pyramids, stepped pyramids, where they were perform. they would have a shrine at the top on the seventh story he called these uh, clear examples of what he called cosmic mountains, right? And a cosmic mountain sits at sort of the the place where uh, heaven touches earth. And the pinnacle of the cosmic mountain represents where this interface between heaven and earth. He also um, calls this an axis mundi. And so I took one look at... Hodges Library, and I said, uh, that's an Axis Mundi. I mean, that's, that's a cosmic mountain, and, but what, what are, I mean, uh, it's where the holy meets the earth, um, where we interface with it, where we, you know, come face-to-face with this cosmic reality, this divinity, the sacred reality, and then I started thinking about well, what 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 is the sacred re- reality in this academic library? How's it expressed? Right, so if we go into Hodge's library, we see um, a secular priesthood, more or less, in the form of a professional libraries who are uh, hierarchically structured, in the same way that 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 um, priests. Have been structured for the past two thousand years, um, and uh, what the first thing you notice when you walk into to Hodges Library is uh, the 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 quiet. Right, so you you recognize there's sort of this moving from profane space to sacred space. So that's the first thing you notice, and. Uh, even though it's the quiet is no longer really encouraged in Hodges Library, particularly when you go through the main entrance, because they're trying to adopt or they have adopted this uh, like universe like this library commons model. That it, that's what you get. And I, I always thought, wh- why does that happen? I mean, why do people default to quiet when they go into the library? Um, and that's because the library is telling you as a symbol to be quiet. And then it is also telling you through other symbols that are related to religion um, that are derived from this religious history, how to act in the library and how to approach the library and how you as a person um, relate to the library and are actually created by the library. So what the library is doing is it's using these symbols And every institution does this in some way, using symbols in order to tell you your place within the actual institution itself. So you you get put into a hierarchical arrangement. You become a lay person. You uh, engage in the rituals of the library, which are handed down, uh, being quiet. And there's also a holy of holies, And when we have the book stacks, now the book stacks are different than, you know, there's not a place where God lives, but there's book stacks represent a substitute for a God, like a um, Abrahamic God or whatever, the Sumerian God. They represent an abstract ideal. In this case, they would be uh, academic libraries. They would be knowledge, right? The Holy of Holies represents this thing, knowledge that in a secular world, we have replaced the former occupant of the temple, the God or gods, with. Um, But basically, it's doing the same thing. It's serving as sort of the, the, it's sitting at the top of this hierarchy that the library is reinforcing. Um, this in this this picture of the cosmos, which the library has throughout time as a temple and now as a more or less a secular temple, is imposing on us. the The library as a um, as an Access Monday is telling us is it's a reflection of the cosmos, and through these symbols, it's telling us how we need to act our relationship with the library. Um, what we're allowed to do, what we're not allowed to do, what's taboo um, in it in its usage.
0: Yeah, and I don't think we talk a lot about um, you know how we subconsciously read those like symbols and rituals um, in the architecture and behavior of these spaces. Um, you you analyze that a lot more in chapters five and six. Um, and I don't know if there's more examples that you want to give of how this kind of library reinforces um, ideological structures with like different symbols and rituals um, that you discussed in those chapters.
1: Yeah, so what we what we did was we um, we looked at as a lens uh, theory of ideology, which is was developed by um, a Marxist thinker named. Named Louis, a French Marxist thinker, in the did most of his work in the 1960s and 70s. His name is Louis Althusser, and he um, he conceived ideology as a material uh, thing. So this is a very Marxist idea, right? So ideology could be conceived as material. Right? Ideas can be seen as material uh, as well as physical things. And what Tuzer said that what we have in society, um, in order to reproduce society, in the the um, the mode of production of that society, which is currently capitalism, because you and the people who are, you know, uh, in power, the elites under capitalism don't really want you to re- reproduce something else like a socialist society or a feudal society, right? So built into our institutions, we have a means of reproducing these ideologies or uh, that will keep capitalism rolling, right? So what Althusser, he came up with the idea of what he called ideo- ideological state apparatuses, right? So we have um, what are called repressive state apparatus, and this would actually be the state itself, which uses violence, primarily violence, in order to keep people in line, things like the uh, police and the military. But in order to reproduce ideology, the uh, capitalist state is a lot more uh, savvy about that. It doesn't use violence. It uses these ideological state apparatuses, things like the educational system, the political system, um, religious uh, institutions, legal institutions, um, it, and he it uses these institutions, which he calls ideological state apparatuses, uh, to reproduce ideology—the ideology of capitalism. Right. So, if you look at the academic library, it's, it's pretty much a, clearly it's an educational ideological state apparatus. People go to college, they get a degree so they can get a job and function in society and reproduce society. But then it's also, if you look past that, you can see that it's also several different others, it contains elements of several different others ideological apparatuses, including like the cultural apparatus culture and arts, and um, the religious apparatus, which I, that's what I'm arguing in this book, basically, is that this apparatus is there and it's still uh, very uh, very much alive. So what Althusser said was um, that the way that ideology works is when you come into contact with ideology, through these ideological state apparatuses, what happens is you enter a relationship with the ideology, right? Althusser didn't really believe in the individual self, right? There's nothing that makes us individual, no human nature. So what happens is these, what we are composed of what ideologies tell us we are. So when we come into contact with the symbols in in the modern capitalist academic libraries, these symbols are ways of relating um, or or having the ideologies behind these symbols tell us who we are, what we need to be doing, what our place is in society, right? Um, So the primary symbols have to do with education, but then we have all of these Religious symbols as well; these these thinly veiled in many cases religious uh, symbols. So, uh, some of the examples that I talked about before were things like statuary. Uh, we see uh, oftentimes names of uh, very important intellectuals are inscribed into the actual buildings themselves or their statuary is usually they their male, which also shows you how this. Ideologies reproducing uh, capitalist ideology and patriarchy. Uh, we see things like um, classification systems, which have been used, which uh, tell us basically the representations of the cosmos and reality. And they are clearly, like in the case of the Dewey Decimal uh, classification, based on uh, Judeo Christian ideologies right so what happens is when we come into contact with these things and we react we don't we don't they build our sense of how they actually build us right the actual institution as well as all the other institutions in society all of our relationships make us without those we wouldn't be anything at all And that's what the library is doing through its symbols and what it's telling us through these religious symbols. And so uh, one example that I use in the book is kind of like kind of a fanciful example is is this idea of library anxiety. So what is the library? Library anxiety is this 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 anxiety students, uh, anybody really feels when they come into contact. The library when they go into the library or even think about the library, a lot of people don't actually go to the library because of library anxiety. So what is library anxiety? Well, if you analyze it ideologically, right, you can make the case that library anxiety is caused by our encounter with these symbols, these ideological symbols, which are telling us how to be in the library. Um, and if we believe that these religion, this residual religious ideology is telling us to do things, what are these symbols telling us to do? And if we, if we look, look at an idea of what going into a sacred space does to us, to human beings, and these ideas of like religious anxiety, um, and uh, Rudolf Otto, a theologian, called this mysterium Premens, or mysterium tremendens, um, this idea that we cower in the face of the holy, um, we can posit this as sort of a, a as an explanation for library anxiety, as a uh, you know, that's what we're doing. We're being told what, to do by the library, which is interesting because everybody is always trying to uh, think of ways to counter library anxiety. But actually, if we look at it through an ideological lens, the library is doing what it's supposed to do, right? It's telling us our place in society, right? Um, Ideologically, what's happening is what's supposed to happen
0: yeah that was a really really fascinating connection that you draw in the book and i was so glad that you wrote about like library anxiety and i think um this gives us really different ways to talk about it and talk about like what the what the real problem is i guess um So moving to your last chapter, you talk about the actual people who work in libraries, and you introduce us to the cynical library worker as well as the clinical library worker. So could you explain those two types and discuss how you envision the clinical library worker as someone who could respond to and challenge the dominant ideological structures found in the modern capitalist academic library?
1: Yeah, so when most people think about cynicism, they think about sort of like the belief that people are motivated by self-interest, kind of the the dictionary definition of cynicism. But um, cynicism as a philosophy dates back to the mid fourth century um, BCE, um, and it's uh, it was it was a, a popular, well, the the main force behind this type of cynicism was this guy named um, Diogenes of Sinope, and he he was a, um, he lived in the Agora of Athens, in the marketplace of Athens, and he um, lived in a big clay pot in the Agora, and he was famous for sort of poking holes into um, uh, the power structures of it, the in the powerful people of Athenian democracy right and he would do all kinds of like outlandish things in order to do this he like would there's stories of him like insulting Alexander the Great and peeing on somebody's leg to make a point um, but that was his his, Goal. It wasn't he wasn't doing it just because he he hated people, but he wanted to point out the absurdities in um, this ideology of this time, this Athenian ideology of de, Athenian democracy of the time. All right, and um, so this was the, the philosophical school of cynicism, uh, and then in I believe in the seventies. This writer Peter Slaughterdyke he he did a study of cynicism and he said he came up with a concept of modern cynics. He said that a modern, while a philosophical cynic understands this power of ideology and the power, the absurdities of the political structure and. And and elements of culture. He said that nowadays, what we we have are modern civics, and modern civics understand this. They understand the absurdity, but they're disillusioned, and therefore they become a part of the system of repression that we are taking part in,
0: that we're living in.
1: And then following on that, there was a um, Slovenian philosopher, uh, Slavoj Zizek. He took this idea and he said um, that well if we have these modern cynics opposed to that what we need are modern kinics and he began the um with a K to differentiate them from cynics and then what he said was a, a kinic is more akin to um Diogen, what the project that Diogenes was doing and a kinic is someone who um Observes the existence of ideological structures, and then acts. Then, then actively struggles against the repressive structures. So, while a modern cynic is just understands what's going on, but they're part of the system. The Kinnic actually uh, actively works against these structures. So, the modern Kinnic's like a. He he called it a lived ideological critique um, with the goal of human emancipation. So it's really a, a successor to this, what I, Diogenes was doing it. And so most modern library workers, I would not classify as modern cynics in the sense that Peter Slaughter Dyke was. Um, but many are, while they have this feeling of unease, they are not really fully understand these ideological elements that they're dealing with. Um, so, uh, the goal, in my opinion, of the modern Kinnick in the ac- academic library is to take these people and take oneself and to uh, achieve a, a critical consciousness of ideologies and and also to to uh, achieve some uh, sense of re- reflexivity in this system so to understand how they as uh, they contribute to this uh, reproduction of ideologies right and what they can do in order to counter this um right and understand you know the, what the roles of things like professionalization means um, the downside like the it, downsides of professionalization, uh, things like the esotericization of of information. Um, and how do you know how do we as modern kinics, how do we or kinical librarians, how do we confront this and struggle against it? So the main the main tool of the modern uh, the main tool of the philosophical, the classical cynic was something called uh, parisia, and that means freedom of speech. So this should be our primary tool as clinical librarians. Um, and parisia means uh, using speech to break through mental confusion, right? and specifically using provocative dialogue that borders on the transgressive. right? so that's what i think that the the librarian today has to do they have to analyze the library understand the library ideology, ideologically right in terms of its religious history in terms of these other ideologies what these ideologies are doing how they're maintaining society and then speak the truth to power right break right through this mental confusion um, which there was a word for that called two fossil smoke what we're trying to do is clear the smoke and also to engage in material action right and to actively work to restructure the institutions and we work in right so not only the institutions but the larger society um, to become and this is uh, one one writer that I uh, red uh, has this fabulous thing saying that we should need to become modern heretics right so we need to forsake the sacred identify the sacred um, but understand how the sacred is impacting our lives impacting our work and then move beyond that um, and, and to to see the whole story in order to uh, change the story
0: yeah it's um it's exciting to read something that like acknowledges our disillusionment and gives us ideas for moving beyond that. Um, yeah. Well, I've taken a lot of your time, but before we wrap up, I would love if you could share a little bit about what you're working on next. Um, if there's any new projects you have that maybe have emerged from this book, or completely different research you're diving into.
1: Yeah. So um, the we, I'm working with uh, Tina Budzice Weaver. She is a another former academic librarian um, here at Texas A&M University. Uh, now she's uh, faculty in performance studies here. Um, and we are writing a book. Uh, what we're doing is we're collecting, uh, we're doing interviews of library uh, library workers, either w- workers or, or scholars or both that um, are in our engage in critical librarianship, who look at the library critically and its cultural aspects. And what we're doing is we're interviewing these people and we're asking them um, to to tell us about um, some sort of seminal seminal intellectual product in their uh, professional makeup, which has guided them in their work as critical thinkers. Um, so we've asked them to pick one seminal, seminal intellectual object or artistic object. It could be a thing like a journal article or a book, um, not necessarily, necessarily even an academic book. Uh, it could be a novel. It could be a, a work of art, uh, music, uh, an album, something that it, that they feel has really um, helped form their critical consciousness. And... Um, propelled their work and so what we're doing is that we we're we're interviewing them and then we're discussing this this item uh, and to sort of build a a bibliography of of these things
0: that sounds really cool will that come in some like book form or some digital form or
1: this will be a book um hopefully in 2000 i think it's scheduled in 2014 for publication We're right at the beginning now, or not 2014. So I'm thinking, I always thinking about the past 2024, 2024, yeah.
0: Super, well, thank you so much uh, for chatting about this. I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, Once again, I've been speaking with Stephen Bales, co-author of Serapis, The Sacred Library and Its Declericalization, published by Library Juice Press. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you've been listening to New Books Network.